Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the wall of the Sunday school room in which I endured confirmation classes for a couple of years as a youngster, there hung a poster that depicted the Ten Commandments. You know the picture. It was, you know, the two stone tablets exactly as they were given to Moses on the mountain. And on each side, inscribed in old-timey font, were chiseled, in Roman numerals, of course, the Ten Commandments. But they were strangely out of balance. On the left tablet, there were only three, with plenty of room to spread out. But on the right tablet, the remaining seven were printed, all bunched together with barely enough room to breathe. It wasn't particularly aesthetically pleasing. Now, Christian people haven't always been known for being really good at graphic design, but that wasn't exactly what was happening. It was intentional. Because I grew up learning that when it comes to the rules of God, the commandments of God, they are essentially divided into two different tables, two different kinds of relationship. They're is the relationship between us and God. That's the first three. In that poster, it was, you shall have no other gods, not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and remember the Sabbath day. That's about us and God. And then on the other side was our relationship with our neighbor. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother, stuff like that. Us and God, us and neighbors. They made enough sense. But then about nine years ago, I moved to a town on the north side of Milwaukee. And on the main street of that town, there were three Jewish synagogues lined up right in a row. And each of them had on their signs renderings of the Ten Commandments, also looking like those stone tablets given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Also engraved, carved in old-timey font, not in Roman numerals, but in Hebrew letters, the Ten Commandments. But they looked different. They were five and five, not three and seven, evenly spaced. They are apparently better at graphic design. (laughs) I was intrigued by this, and I happened to become pretty good friends with one of the rabbis in town, and so I asked her one time, I said, well, you know, what's the deal with the Ten Commandments? You know, I always grew up thinking that there was us and God and us and the neighbor, but it doesn't appear that that's the same. Can you tell me what's going on? And she paused for a really long time. That rabbi always paused for an uncomfortably long time when I asked her questions. And eventually she said, I mean no disrespect, but this helps me understand a little bit more about you Christians. She said, I find it inconceivable that I could ever in any way separate my relationship with God from my relationship with my neighbor. That just doesn't make sense to us. Because we believe that Each and every child of earth is made in the divine image, has inscribed on their skin 
the very presence of the Creator God. And so how we treat our neighbors cannot be separated from how we regard our God. If I want to know what somebody believes about God, all I have to do is observe how they treat their neighbors. I was, as they say, cut to the quick. But I am more and more sure each day that she's absolutely right. There is no way to separate out our relationship with God from our relationship with neighbor. And when we try, things get all kinds of messy. I I think she's right, because it is that very tendency among Christians, and unfortunately Lutherans have kind of a rough heritage here. It's that tendency to separate out our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbor that makes it possible for us to go to worship on Sunday morning and give thanks and praise to a God of justice and peace and mercy and compassion and welcome of the stranger and then spend the rest of the week disregarding our neighbors, turning our backs on people in need, cutting each other down to size, digging in deeper, every entrenched division among us, calling one another fools and worse. As long as I'm good with God on Sunday, the rest of the week is up to me. It is also that same tendency that makes some of us get a little bit squeamish when a preacher tiptoes up toward the line of politics in church. We get all kinds of nervous about bringing the stuff of the world into worship. Now, I understand that there are lots of different ways to understand how things ought to be in the world, and yet, if indeed we believe that God's image is inscribed on the very bodies and blood of each and every child of earth, then how could the stuff of the world not be the stuff of worship? How could our relationship with all of the world and all its peoples not be implicated in what we sing and pray and read in worship? My friend, the rabbi was right. If I want to know what you believe about God, and if you want to know what I believe about God, you just have to observe how I treat my neighbor. And ashamedly, I must admit that if you paid a lot of attention to how I regard my neighbor from Monday to Saturday, you would discover that my God is very small indeed. Far too small for the God who created heaven and earth and all its people. The God I give worship to in how I regard my neighbor from Monday to Saturday is small enough to fit into my preconceived notions about how things are, my prejudgments about who you are based on who you voted for, or where you live, or what language you speak, or who you give your worship to. 
I don't think I'm alone in that. But if we indeed evaluate and observe how we regard our neighbors, I imagine most of us would discover that our God is much too small. But thanks be to God, God is not constrained by how we regard the goodness and expansive love and life of God. You see, God knows deep in God's own skin what it means for us to fail miserably, not just to refrain from killing one another, for we do that all the time in word and in deed, but how often we fail to, as Martin Luther encourages us, to do everything in our power to make our neighbors' lives more livable, more just, more merciful, more fruitful, more alive. Knowing that, God chose to slip even further into human skin so that God could bear in God's own flesh and blood the slings and arrows of this outrageous fortune carry on God's own shoulders this mortal coil, to know deep in God's own self what it is for us to disregard one another, so that when we catch ourselves failing to do right by our neighbor, doing what is wrong to those in need, we know, for it ought to sting our foreheads that we are doing violence to the very body of Christ himself. And as we retrace this sign, we also know that by slipping into our skin and going to our own death, God has proclaimed with God's own flesh and blood that all the violence we can hurl at one another and indeed at God's own self can never have the final word. That the God who is a God of resurrection and life will never stop bringing us into hope and wholeness. We know that because that sign that hung on the wall in my confirmation class, it was wrong on two accounts. It was wrong not only because it separates out the relationship between us and God and us and neighbor, but also because it utterly forgot the first commandment. Now, if you've been with us all this summer, you know what I'm talking about. The commandments do not begin with, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. But what? Repeat after me. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You see, ours is a God who sees and hears the cries of each and every child of earth who suffers under the oppressor's rod and has poured God's whole self into the project of liberation, the project of bringing peace and wholeness and life and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ into which sweet, sweet Charlotte is washed this morning. 
we know that those forces will never, ever have the final word for her or for us. And thanks be to God for that.